Seltzer Kings Podcasts. Hey, are you into werewolves, mad sciences, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. Why does this place smell like bad wheat? Why are you burning sage, Gavin? Oh, Christ. I'm making these stories up. They're not even real. Ass. The following podcast contains... Like F you and, and, and S and stuff like that, and then MF and stuff like that. Those are not... Those are... Those, those are... Um, they're not, they're not words. Those are names of spirits. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you just went on up, up the holler like that by yourself, what the hell far was you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is a Friday, October 18th, 2019. I'm your boogeyman spooktacular part one edition of the show, where we talk about the monsters waiting to get me during my childhood. Stay tuned, if you dare. (laughs) The What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast is brought to you by the monster beneath your bed. Are you a small child alone in the dark with only the ticking of the clock in the deep of night? Can you hear a rustling sound beneath you as you pull your blankets closer? Do you catch the smell of the fetid stench of foul breath nearby? When you go to call out for someone, anyone to come and help, is it hard to find your voice? Do you see the long clawed hand rising against the dim light from beneath the door? He's here, beneath you, waiting only for you to close your eyes for a moment. The monster beneath your bed, he's there, waiting, waiting, always waiting. People still hear shrieks in the mountains like the cackling of the notorious one who, once upon a time, could appear in any shape she wished. Spearfinger was her name, and she was a master of disguise. She could look like your friend, like a fish, or a bird, or a mouse, or like the kindest person you had ever known. But beneath those many disguises, she was a monster whom no one could harm. Arrows, knives, and rocks bounced off of her body, for it was made of stone. Parents warned their their children. Stay in the lodge, they said, but Lunta, for that is what they called her, is on the trails looking for children like you. But children do not always listen. I've mentioned a time or three my maternal grandmother, whose philosophy of child care involved her educating her grandchildren on the myriad things that could happen to us if we weren't careful. There were snakes, bears getting lost in the woods, and of course, the ever-present threat of the Romani people. You were kidnapped by gypsies and sold to the circus. One of her favorite threats were the omnipresent evil spirits, or haints, that lurked in the darkness waiting to prey on any children foolish enough not to be home by dark. And when you're seven or eight years old who lives on a steady diet of television and fantasy novels, you kind of take that shit seriously. 
Now, among her, one of her favorite haints was the Wampus Cat, which I talked about on episode 133, an old Cherokee legend of a cursed woman damned to take the form of a mountain lion and stalk the blood of men across the mountains. Nice kitty. Don't hurt me, kitty. But nothing in all her repertoire could compare to my maternal grandfather when you could get him to tell you some of the haints he grew up with. Now, my grandpa was a man of few words, unlike his grandson, but he was, had a deep knowledge of useful things, also unlike his grandson. So he rarely indulged in spinning yarns. But the one he was most famous for was a woman he called Lady Stoneskin. Now, the story, as he told it, was that deep, deep back in the mountains, there lived an old Cherokee woman who, when old Andy Jackson decided that all the Cherokee had to go west, she refused and hid away in a cave deep in a holler that no white man knew of. And from her hiding, she watched all of her kinfolk forced off their land and her heart grew cold and hard as an old river stone in her rage. And all through her long, long years, she stayed there in her cave as white men came closer and closer, stealing her people's land. And so when she knew that her time was done and lay dying, she chanted spells with her dying breath as she might come back and take vengeance against the white man in her hills. And so she died for a while because she was not long dead, but reborn as a powerful spirit of vengeance. She is so pissed. That spirit would come back and could assume any form it chose. It could assume a harmless visage to get close to her victims or perhaps even a friend or loved one. Then she would show her true form just before she struck, a wizened crone whose skin was like the stone of the mountains. She would howl like a great beast and grab her victim by the throat, hoist them from their feet, and plunge a long stone finger into their belly and spill their guts on the ground at her feet all the while cackling madly, and then as their life leaked from them, she would slowly consume her guts to sustain her life in pursuit of her vengeance. Oh, that's going to leave a mark. Which is why, whenever you are deep in the mountains at night, if you're ever traveling alone, or even with people you know, and you come upon someone who ought not be there, Keep them beyond the light of your fire until they can prove to you they are who they say they are because they might be Lady Stoneskin come for your liver. We would only get the story when camping and always when one of my uncles was away from the fire probably taking a piss and then they would return at the climax of the story and my grandfather would point the shape of our uncle coming up through the dark and send all of us kids shrieking into the trucks that brought us up to the mountains to hide until they finished laughing. Don't laugh, it ain't funny. I mean, it wasn't then, but now I kind of think it's fucking hilarious. What I didn't know as a child, besides how babies were made, is that my grandpa's story was a lot older than he was, which at the time I thought was, like, ancient. The time is probably not any older than I am now, but that's too depressing to think of. This is a horror show, not a sad show. Why are you so old? Because my plan of living stupidly hasn't paid off yet, but it will. Mark my words. It will. No, my grandpa's story was a mountain folk retelling of the Cherokee legend of Spearfinger, which you heard of at the top of the show. And you know, I kind of feel cheated. Because my family moved around so much when I was a kid, I never got to really experience the local boogeymen other kids seemed to grow up with. The closest I got was the booger man my granny would sometimes talk about, and I could bring, then I'd just break out in giggles because all I could think of when she said booger man was how the snozberries taste like snozberries. <laughs> 
I mean, just a walking mound of boogers all dried out and flaky. Disgusting to be sure, but not scary and easily defeated if I really thought about it. Because my cousin Tim, I could just turn him loose on him. Because Tim, and I want to put this as gently as I possibly can, had a booger eating habit. And it was really disgusting. So I decided that the reason for the season this year called for me to devote part one of this year's spooktacular to all the local monsters of the places I grew up with a kid and knew nothing about, but can now easily Google. I do this for two reasons. The first is, it's October, and I want to do spooky stuff. And the second is, I'm legit terrified of all the real things going on in the world right now, and I want to talk about anything else besides politics. So join me, won't you, for a paranormal tour of my childhood in part one of our annual Spooktacular. We begin as close to my birth home as possible, leaving aside the Cherokee legend I've mentioned. And I take you about an hour northeast of Etowah, Tennessee, to Wallen, just outside Maryville, just south of Knoxville, for the tale of Skin Tom. According to legend, the tale began in the 1920s when young couples first started stepping out in automobiles and lovers' lanes to began to be a thing and adheres to a, a classic morality tale about doinking in the woods after dark. I give to you the legend of Skin to Tom. Now, where I live in semi-rural East Tennessee, we got our own very own version of Freddy Krueger. He's known as Skin to Tom. In life... Tom was a good-looking feller who liked the ladies, and he once dated all the available girls in the area, and after he'd finished, he seen him a girl in the next town over, not knowing that she's married. Now, eventually, as things will, her husband got wind to what was going on, and he vowed revenge on the two of them. He told his wife he's going out of town for the weekend, then went up and hid in the woods right behind the house. And as he guessed, that evening, old Tom showed up to take the lady out. Now, the husband followed them to a nearby lover's lane, and things was getting pretty hot and heavy, if you know what I mean. But all of a sudden, the car door jerked open, and Tom came face to face with a very huge, angry-looking dude wielding himself a hunting knife. Oh, no, screamed the girl. It's my husband. And her husband said, that's right, you cheating fuckers. I'm about to teach you a lesson you ain't never going to forget. And he pulled her off Tom, rammed the knife into her stomach once, and tossed her aside. And then he turned back to Tom, grinning maniacally, and don't hurt me, Tom Beg. I swear to God, I didn't know she was married. Thinking perhaps the man was just only angry at his cheating wife, I reckon, and that he might be in a mood for mercy. But the wrong husband didn't listen. He dragged Tom out the car and skint him alive with that there hunting knife. Then he went into town and turned himself in to the sheriff. When the sheriff arrived at the crime scene, they found a woman who was miraculously still alive, but old Tom weren't nowhere to be found. And they say... He's still hanging around the lover's lanes, waiting to catch a couple and teach them the same lesson his girlfriend's husband taught him. He's described as a bloody skeleton wearing clothes from the 1920s and carrying the knife he himself was skint with. All the teenagers around here grow up here and don't go to lover's lane if you don't want to be skinned Tom's next victim. Now, I never heard of Skin Tom, and admittedly, Walland is pretty far from Etowah. Pre-internet, the chances of it traveling that far is pretty slim. But if you grew up any place in America, chances are pretty good. There's a similar legend near you. Just head out into the woods at night with a married woman and, I don't know, see who pops up. Pro tip, been there, done that. I still got my skin. From Tennessee, my family relocated west to Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. 
Midwest City to be precise, an OKC suburb and home to the infamous Purple Church. Ask where they're going, they'll tell you nowhere. They've taken a lifetime lease on the Girl on the seesaw's laughing for love is the call of the place in No, 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 this has nothing to do with Prince, at least as far as I know. The Purple Church is a place long associated with satanic ritual, animal sacrifice, and evil spirits. Let us together learn of its dark history. From the blog, Teresa's Haunted History of the Tri-State, I give you the legend of the Purple Church. On the outskirts of Spencer, Oklahoma, there's a location so scary that the alleged paranormal activity is said to take place there is the least horrifying aspect of its history. On the outskirts of Spencer, Oklahoma, there's a location so scary that the alleged paranormal activity is said to take place there is the least horrifying aspect of its history. That location is the Purple Church. This location ain't exactly a church and ain't exactly purple either. Located off rural Douglas Avenue, the Purple Church is actually a concrete foundation with steps leading into an underground cellar top area. And there's speculation as to what the structure was allegedly used as, but uh, the general consensus being that this was the cellar of even an old clapboard church or a private home that was destroyed many, many years ago. The purple comes from the many occult and satanic symbols that are sprayed inside and out of the small structure. The purple church has a long history of alleged satanic cult rituals, and there are many sources online saying that Sean Sellers, the alleged 16-year-old Satanist convicted of killing both his parents in a convenience store cloak, was instrumental in first using the property for them purposes. One of the most prevalent beliefs is that when a full moon falls on Saturday, cult members meet at the Purple Church to engage in a virgin sacrifice. Similar tales involve mothers sacrificing newborn babies there. While there's little evidence to, to no evidence that any human sacrifices are or ever have been conducted at the Purple Church, there are plenty of eyewitnesses that account to say that animal sacrifices are routinely conducted. Dead and mutilated animals as well as animal bones have been found hanging from the trees or on makeshift altars all along the path leading to the Purple Church. One tale, a witness claimed to have found a tub full of animal body parts. As far as paranormal story goes, there's actually very little information on that, although the Purple Church has a widespread reputation as a haunted location. Strange floating lights in the woods, disembodied voices, and the smell of death are most widely reported. However, as I said, the paranormal aspects are the least of anyone's worry when you go out to there. Again... Many visitors of this site, including those in law enforcement and the military and other stations in life we'd consider more credible when it comes to reporting, have had similar horrifying incidents with the living. People claim to be chased out of the area by men in robes. They've had shotguns pulled on them and otherwise have been threatened. Some witnesses claim that nails are regularly thrown into the road in order to damage tars and possibly strand people in the area. Others were chased down the road by someone in a large truck, usually with its headlights off. Researching the Purple Church, I can find claims going back as far as the early 80s when I lived in Oklahoma City, and this location was very near to where my family lived and where we went to church. But again, I heard nothing. 
about being, you know, I'm slightly too young to know anyone with a car and a penchant for breaking into private property on a ghost hunt. But still, if you are of a mind to read the stories, I will include a link in the show notes to the Facebook page about the site where locals tell tales of the Purple Church going back to the 1980s. Now, clearly, the Purple Church is the legacy of a satanic panic that found all sorts of places allegedly being used for black mass rituals, daycare centers, the lawn and garden of Walmart. It didn't matter. But when you dig around, you tend to find it less being the Church of Satan and more being teenagers who wear a lot of black and seen too many horror movies. Still, the Purple Church has managed to find a place in the spooky annals of Oklahoma City as the scary place for the youngs, and thanks to the property owner's tactics of uh, keeping thrill-seeking teens and ghost hunters off the property... Get off my land, you piece of shit! The legend can only grow. Now, things get interesting. When my family found itself 10,000 miles away from Oklahoma City on the island of Guam, there were plenty of scary things to be afraid of. Most of them sheer culture shock of some dumb redneck finding himself on a tropical island and being an ethnic minority in high school. Things didn't so much go bump in the night as bump in the halls as you found yourself being slammed into a wall. Stop ruining our island, Howleys! Howleys being a quaint term borrowed from the Hawaiians for unwanted white people. Scary, educational for a passively racist white boy, but still scary. Guam was chock full of legends, most of which surrounding jungle spirits and Japanese soldiers who didn't surrender hiding in the jungle, which is a very real thing that happened. A cat named Sochi Yokoi hid in the jungles on Guam until 1972, when he was finally captured and went home to a hero's welcome. Fifteen years later, when I was there, according to legend, the hills were alive with Japanese soldiers, all willing to kill to keep from being captured, despite being well into their 60s at the youngest. Where I lived on Anderson Air Force Base was the northern tip of Guam, and the surrounding jungles were the last holdout for the Japanese on the island in the final days of the American invasion. And when they knew all was lost, they fled into the jungles and staged futile raids against the GIs. Just outside the gates of the base along Matagak Hill, the command post of the Japanese commander, and it was crushed by American artillery. You go up and see the remains of the pillboxes and the destroyed defenses. And the hills of the base hid the fled remnants of 10,000 Japanese soldiers, most of whom slowly starved to death in the jungles. It was said their hungry ghost roamed those jungles, always searching for revenge. And they would eat the flesh of any American foolish enough to wander into the leaves, still serving their emperor with undying loyalty. It was well known in the teen set that you dared not be out after midnight in certain places, lest you be suddenly grabbed from behind and a ghostly Japanese bayonet slit your throat the last sound you would hear would be Banzai! Oh, I could do a full episode just on the legends of Guam. I mean, the Tautamona spirits of the island put me on a path of writing and performing things like this. And they almost got me my first girlfriend, except I was too big of a nerd to know it at the time. Sorry about that, Agnes. 
One of these days, I'm going to go back into the island and make a little offering in the jungle. Not because I so much believe in them, but just to say, you know, thanks. Now, I would like to say that moving from Guam to Mountain Home, Idaho, was equally as spooky and filled with macabre legends. But as a one commenter on Reddit put it so adroitly, all we have here are bored Iowans looking to leave. I don't remember a single tale from my time in Idaho, though I was a pretty busy with things in my final two years of high school. You know, kid stuff. He sells a bit of weed every now and again. So I went digging around through good stories about Boogeyman from Idaho, and I found the usual Native American legends. The water babies of Pocatello are particularly gruesome. But I was looking for more urban legend stuff, and I found something that I actually remember happening that has gone on to become an urban legend. Right around the time I graduated from high school, there was a grisly murder in Boise. Which, uh, people do not get murdered in Boise, neither then and now, or nor now. People, it's way too boring for people to get murdered in Idaho. But in late June 1987, someone did get murdered. From the website Digital History, quote, Court documents state that on June, the night of June 30th, 1987, an altercation broke out between three men, Preston Murr, Darren Cox, and Daniel Rogers, the owners of 805 Linden. Preston Murr was shot in the shoulder, and as a result of the altercation, attempting to flee, Murr ran, ran to a home, nearby homes and pleaded at the doors for help. But before anyone opened the door, the, the doors, Rogers and Cox retrieved Murr and dragged him back to Rogers' house. Once inside, Murr was fatally shot by a bullet to the brain. Soon after the shooting, a nearby neighbor, the owner of the house Murr ran to for help, phoned the police and reported the suspicious activity. However, it being Boise, the police did not respond promptly and the neighbor went to bed. Having murdered Murr, Rogers and Cox dismembered the body and placed the pieces into plastic bags. The bags were then placed in the trunk of a car and Rogers and Cox drove to Brownlee Reservoir near Weezer, Idaho to dump the body parts. The remaining evidence, gloves, and plastic bags were thrown into a dumpster behind Meridian Idaho Convenience Store, unquote. Come to find out, this has become a thing in the past 30 years. On June 30th, 1987, this house was surrounded in crime tape. A trail of blood splattered the porch, sidewalk, and the front door of a neighbor's home. Investigators traced the trail of blood to the basement, where Preston Murr was shot in the head and hacked up into 13 pieces. A week later, parts of his body surfaced over 100 miles away. Now the rumor is that this 21-year-old man will forever haunt this home. And even non-believers believe it's created an urban legend. Yeah, that was a good murder. Now, since then, stories have circulated about the house being haunted, blood appearing on doors, people telling tales of figures walking around the houses, see or seen in windows, an ominous presence in the basement. The original murder has been conflated and evolved in like some crazy frat house murder, though the now house never was a frat house, but it gives it that nice teen thriller span. And everyone says the place is haunted. Except, you know, the people who actually live in the fucking house. For Deanne Davis and her daughters, living in this home was, for the most part, normal. I'm not uneasy in the house. I'm not afraid at any time. I don't feel there's somebody watching me. I've never experienced doors open when I shut them, or I never heard people walking on the stairs when there was nobody. Like I said, Idaho is really fucking boring. And finally, though this is not technically my childhood, I would be remiss in leaving out the most famous urban legend associated with anywhere I have ever lived. None other than the king himself. I think almost everybody in Memphis has picked up Elvis' ghost hitchhiking. 
Oh, yes, pod friends. The king walks the earth in many places, but none more than his home and resting place. If you believe the rumor that he's actually dead in Graceland, Memphis, Tennessee. I saw the ghost of Elvis on Union Avenue. I followed him up to the gates of Graceland. Watched him walk right through Now security, they did not see him But they just hovered round his tomb There's a pretty little thing Waiting for the king Down in the jungle room Where I was walking in Memphis Walking with my feet Ten feet off a Now, I lived outside of Memphis for three years. I spent my weekends there whenever possible. And while I did not personally go to Graceland because I have some pride, I can report to you that I did not see the king's ghost anywhere in the local area. It's possible that there's simply no such thing as ghost, but I also think that when it comes down to it, we all know the real explanation of what happened to Elvis. That is it for our show this week and for part one of our annual spooktacular, All the Monsters Lurking in the Shadows of My Childhood. To be honest, they kind of suck because none of them are super scary and none of them even remotely plausible. I mean, shit, I just made up that shit about Japanese soldiers on Guam, but that's the one that sounded the most real, didn't it? Honest to God, I, I'm going to do that one as a whole story. It's fucking awesome. I am. Ah, <laughs> oh, maybe I'll do it as a Patreon special. Hey, speaking of Patreon, click on over to patreon.com slash what the hell podcast was a great place for you to kick us a buck or two. And we'll buy whiskey for it with uh, which is our version of troubles and spirits. And I'm doing some twisted shit for Halloween over there. I mean, I am reading letters from serial killers to their to their uh, victims or to their victims, families. And I'm doing the voices. And frankly, it's creeping me out a little bit and I should probably stop doing it. Rate and review this show to exercise your demons onto someone else. It will help them find it, hear it, and become possessed by my dark power. Check out some of the devilish extras that we've got going over to whatthehellpodcast.com and all of my devilish charm on Twitter at the hell underscore podcast. Next week for part two, we're going to focus on the real monsters of our childhood, the evil that lurked in the darkness for real. We're going to talk some murder next week. I mean, we're not a true crime podcast and we don't pretend to be, but I think I can make you sick to your stomach just like they can. I mean, in one of the stories I've got, they nail a baby to a tree. So uh, for me, Dave, skinned Dave Bledsoe, producer, high priest of the Purple Church, Gavin, and all the fictional Japanese ghost soldiers on this show, we want to say, I am your boogeyman. That's what I am. That's what I am. And we'll see you all...
I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.